and good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to The Other Side of Midnight. That kind of magical time between dusk and dawn, where from the land of enchantment, anything can happen. We're going to talk about an extraordinary adventure tonight. We're going to take a foray, courtesy of our guest, uh, guest John Hogue, into the future. And I'm going to ask John, you know, a very basic question. How can we trust anything coming to us from the future? I mean, how is the future, which, of course, by normal mainstream standards, has not yet happened, how can we apprehend what could happen if we don't know what happened? That's only one of the many questions I have tonight about what we're undertaking. Before we get to that, however, I do have a couple of news items. Betelgeuse is still dimming. <clears throat> As we said last night, I mean, this is a really remarkable story uh, to go together with a number of remarkable stories. The bright star in the upper shoulder, right shoulder of the constellation of Orion the Hunter, which strides across the winter sky as this most stunning, splendiferous constellation. And Anetta can look up splendiferous. It's a real word. Um, it has been dimming since October, and rather dramatically. And I've been trying to get updates from a couple, three days ago, and uh, the astronomical community, aside from being puzzled, and some of them mumbling under their breath, coming supernova, coming supernova, they, uh, they're, they're being kind of closed-mouthed. Um, what's interesting, and I didn't have time to find the link and post it, is that Betelgeuse is following the escapades of something like a hundred other stars in the sky that have been analyzed by a survey team at one of the major universities going back and looking at old photographic plates. I think the U.S. Naval Observatory's archive of sky imagery, synoptic sky imagery, from like about 100 years ago has been used. And um, they have found, after they winnowed all the false alarms and the, you know, the dead pixels, because they're comparing the scans of the old photographs with brand new, you know, state-of-the-art digital sky surveys that can do like a whole sky survey in a couple nights. I mean, the, the technological advancement, if you're, if you're an amateur astronomer and you have bought any equipment, you know, cameras or telescopes or whatever, you know now that there's a lot of high-end astronomers around the world that are operating with more efficiency and capable of seeing and recording more things than the most high-end professional observatory of 50 or 60 years ago, like, uh, the 200-inch on Mount Palomar. I mean, the astronomical progress and the democratization of the science has been stunning. Well, this astronomical group at this university, whose name escapes me at the moment, set out a couple of years ago to kind of compare modern sky digital surveys with ancient photographic plates of the sky. And there's an awful lot of observatories around the world that have done these sky surveys over the decades and, you know, over the last hundred or so years uh, in Germany and England and Harvard, um, the U.S. Naval Observatory. So this group picked the Naval Observatory, I think, because of the uniformity of their data. And when they had eliminated all the false positives, they were left with 100, give or take, stars, red stars, like Betelgeuse that had, in the last hundred years, simply, totally disappeared. Poof! They're gone. And there was no marker to mark their passing, like a supernova remnant or, a, you know, a, a nova remnant. or I mean, nothing. It's like they were there then, they're not there now. And uh, we may, I actually may call a friend of mine, a New York astronomer I know, and we may do an evening on this because... Stars are not supposed to, in any mainstream models, uh, save one new one, which has to do with electron capture going on in the core of their computer models of fusion in the centers of ancient stars. They're not supposed to go quietly into that good night. In fact, um, this, is, this kind of brings up a, um, a, a very interesting, 
I think it was a short story by an old friend of mine, Arthur Clark. And when John comes on, I'll see if he remembers the story because it's eerily prescient of something that Clark wrote, you know, 50, 60 years ago in this very memorable uh, short story, which I believe was called The Nine Billion Names of God. So, um, John, if you're listening, uh, make note that we're going to come back to that. Uh, if you want to follow where I'm going with these stories, you're going to want to go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner for John Hogue for December 29th, the Roaring Twenties, 2020s actually, and click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down to where you see the presidential briefing, which is right under the uh, – uh, actually, we don't have to do that tonight. Right under the banner on the show page – guest page, sorry. There are fast links to me and John. Click on mine. That will take you down to items one, two, three. The second cluster of items from two to three to four to five are all focused on this outer solar system mystery, which is quietly working its way into history tonight, unbeknownst to almost everybody except you, the audience of the other side of midnight. Because as I said a couple weeks ago, and said, I guess, last week, this object, this extraordinary interstellar comet called Borisov, which was discovered by an amateur astronomer back in August in the Ukraine. Hmm, Ukraine pops up a lot in our conversations these days. It is turns out to be following a Muamua a year before, only the second interstellar visitor to the solar system. I mean, what are the odds that two such anomalies will occur back-to-back in the space of one terrestrial year? The answer? None. Zero. Zip. Somebody is doing this. Now, how do I know? That's where items three, four, and five in radio with pictures and my items come in. Those are close-ups, snapshots, screenshots of the JPL database browser, which is item number two, if you go into that browser, that's a JPL computer program, which is real time. You can go and fiddle around with the uh, angles and view perspectives on Borisov. You can zoom in, zoom out, change plane, change scale. And in the bottom left-hand corner of these screenshots, there is a little note showing the distance of the comet, so-called comet, from Earth, from the sun, and the date, and uh, uh, there's some other information there. Let me make one more little check. Uh, oh, yeah, the uh, date and time, the universal time, Greenwich. Earth distance, sun distance, and the name of the comet, which technically is C slash 219Q4, which is really Comet Borisov, because he's the guy in Ukraine who discovered it a couple, three months ago. You'll notice from the shots that I posted that this thing on the 19th at about midnight UTC in Greenwich reached 19.4847 AU 19.48 AU now that's of course the famous 19.5 of hyperdimensional physics again on the um, uh, 7th I believe of January in the coming, you know, couple, three weeks, uh, it's going to happen again. If you click on item number five, that will take you to a screenshot I made for January 1, uh, first month, January 7th at 00 UTC. And Earth distance, as it's heading back out into interstellar space, never to return, because it's moving faster than a bat out of you know where, far more than the escape velocity of the sun at that distance, that's when it crosses back out at 1.95 AU, another 19.5. So by those numbers, which are astronomically impossible unless someone's done this, this is how I know, and of course the inside crowd knows, that something has been sent to us, an emissary designed to call our attention to the physics. Why 
Well, maybe it refers to what's going on in item number one. Because, of course, if Betelgeuse is dimming dramatically, the hyperdimensional model is in control. And, oh, did I forget to tell you, I think I told you last night, that uh, Betelgeuse, in addition to dimming, for the last 15 or 20 years, according to astronomers at Mount Wilson, who've been measuring this assiduously with the infrared interferometer up there, which is designed to measure very tiny stellar diameters at interstellar distances, Betelgeuse has also been shrinking. A red supergiant originally larges the orbit of Jupiter around the sun, five times the distance from the Earth to the sun, half a billion miles in the space of 15 years, as reported by a paper back in 2009, had shrunk by 15%, but without changing brightness. And I went into the physics of that last night, so I won't bore you again. You can you can go to the archive, Club 19.5, and listen to what I said last night. <clears throat> hint, hint. Anyway, the idea that a star can shrink but not change in brightness means something has to be compensating. Now, of course, that compensation seems to be at an end, and the star is dimming. But we can't find out if it's shrinking. Um tomorrow, which is Monday, which is, of course, the day before New Year's Eve, I'm going to place a call to Mount Wilson and try to find a live human being to see what the latest results are. But there have been no published papers uh, since 2009. That's 10 years, which means if Betelgeuse has been shrinking steadily ever since that last paper in 2009, it could be much smaller than it was uh, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, when these measurements first began. But there's been no news, which is kind of weird. Okay, and uh, John and I will probably talk about this at some length when we get around to it. We have a lot to cover tonight, so let me move with alacrity here. Item number six. I want to caution you. This is from uh, Ben Fulford, who, to my estimation, is a questionable source but he's written this this paper, published December 28th, which was yesterday, which says, headline, Antarctica under lockdown as secret space program unveiling begins. And the first couple of paragraphs, an unusual flurry of events and press announcements make it clear the U.S. government is unveiling its secret space program. Multiple sources now agree. Notice it says is unveiling. We are also hearing of a Chinese secret space program, a Nazi secret space program, and a Russian secret space program. All of these revelations are being accompanied by unusual movements of gold and other financial anomalies here on Earth. The recent trade agreement between the U.S. and China is also linked, says Fulford, to these secret programs. Chinese and Pentagon sources agree. These are all signs that some sort of mind-boggling planetary event may be coming. Now, again, read that with a uh, couple of bags of salt next to your computer. Uh, Pulford is, has been uneven in his documentation of some of the extraordinary things that he has claimed. But in this case, I just have a feeling based on the confluence of celestial events, including what's going on with Betelgeuse, that um, he may be a leading indicator of what's to come. Which brings us to item number seven, good old Tetrahedral 7. Because right under the Fulford uh, article, there's something I just spotted before airtime. And this, uh, let me click on it. This is really interesting and hopefully... Uh, no unusual noises will pop up. These these pages sometimes have news programs where you open one link and then a bunch of other stuff kind of comes up. This is a story from the Business Insider published today, and it's it's pretty amazing. Listen to this. Something strange has been happening in eastern Colorado at night. Since the week of Christmas, 12 days of Christmas, etc., Giant drones measuring up to six feet across 
have been spotted in the sky at night, sometimes in swarms as large as 30 vehicles. The Denver Post, very reliable paper, first reported these mysterious drone sightings in northeast Colorado on December 23rd. Since then, sightings have spanned six counties across Colorado and Nebraska. Now, here's the part that's unbelievable. Phillips County Sheriff Thomas Elliott had no answer for where the drones come from or who they belong to, but he has a rough grasp on their flying habits. He told the Denver Post they've been doing a grid search, a grid pattern. They fly one square, then they fly another square. The drones, estimated to have six-foot wingspans, have been flying over Phillips and Yuma counties every night for about the last week, Elliot said. Monday, each night at least 17 drones appear at around 7 p.m. and disappear at around 10 p.m., staying 200 to 300 feet in the air. The Federal Aviation Agency told the Post it had no idea where the drones come from. Spokespeople for the Air Force, the DEA, and U.S. Army Forces Command all said the drones did not belong to their organizations either. And the story continues, and you can go read it. But, I mean, why are we paying taxes to government agencies to keep it safe if you can have a fleet of 30 drones appear over, you know, several western states and counties, and nobody thinks they know anything? I just have a feeling that all of these stories are somehow deeply connected to, as John has said, the roaring coming 2020s. John Hogue is author of over 1,200 articles and 48 published books as of a couple of hours ago, something like a 1 million copies plus sold, spanning 21 languages. John has predicted the winner of every U.S. presidential election by popular vote since 1968, giving him a remarkable 13-0 and zero batting average. Hogue is a world-renowned expert on the properties of Nostradamus and many other prophetic traditions. John claims to focus, it says here, on interpreting the world's ancient and modern prophets and prophecies with fresh eyes, seeking to connect readers with the shared and collective visions of terror, wonder, and revelation about the future in a conversational narrative style. Hogue says the future is but a temporal echo of actions initiated today. He strives to take readers, quote, back to the present, empowering them to create a better destiny through accessing the untapped potentials of free will and meditation. John, welcome back to the other side. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Well, you heard my mysteries at the top. What is your, what is your take? What's going on? Well, where do you want to start? There were nine. Which ones do you want to start with first? Well, let's start with the drones because they're like right in our face. What in the world could be happening that's like in a small invasion fleet and local authorities and the federal government claim to have no idea, and even weirder, no curiosity. Well, um, you know, at this stage, it's a funny thing with what I do. Um, I I read the future, and this is the first time I've heard about this in this situation. What I try to bring into my work is unless I can research that myself a little further, uh, there's really, I really have no comment. I, I'm not, I'm not qualified to comment on it. Um, so, uh, perhaps, uh, I'm more qualified to comment on the prophetic possibilities of betel goose Shrinking. Betelgeuse shrinking. Well, I mean, the idea that this survey has found 100 stars, all of them red, because you do that by color filters in these ancient archive surveys. They take a red plate, a green plate, a blue plate sometimes. The fact that they're, they just disappeared. Do you remember Arthur Clarke's famous story, The Nine Billion Names of God? Well, I do, but I wouldn't want to be a, <laughs> um, a uh, you know, to steal the plot. 
by telling the whole world about yeah, we, <laughs> where it goes. Uh, thank you. But, the, but I will hint that the, the winking out of things is an element in the an story. An element, but a I major element. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as soon but I as wouldn't I want to say more because I don't want to be a bus killer. Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, let me let me. You know, we got a few minutes till the bottom of the hour, and um, I want to know one thing, which we probably talked about briefly when you were on the show the other time, first time, second time. But we have new audience coming in constantly, so they they would benefit from you reprising this. How the hell did you get into looking at the future professionally? Well, it evolved from a fascination with the patterns of uh, repetition in the past. I was uh, very much, I think, shocked in an early age into being very interested in journalism and news trends because uh, if things didn't go right on my eighth birthday um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was the day that the missiles would have been launched oh my attack on Korea on, on uh and and yeah and so you know 48 hours earlier the whole situation with Dobrynin and Robert Kennedy sorted out the problem and they made a pack about the missiles in Turkey and but if that had not happened um I uh my birthday on that Monday 29th October my eighth birthday would have would have been the beginning of World War Three. Yeah. The a thing that makes this important in my life is that that's really the beginning of my interest in the premonitions and things because I have a book that's on the list of books there called uh, Nostradamus Premonitions of 911, where I look and delve into three major premonitions that I documented in my life. The first being just the the week before my eighth birthday. Yeah, that's item um, number that seven. Kind of, item number seven in John's yeah. list. So click on the fast links at the top of the page to John's items, Nostradamus premonitions of nine eleven. And it um, it it then later looks at a twelve year process, all documented in published articles and TV shows up to nine eleven, showing how I wanted to share with people how there's an evolution in in prophetic interpretation. Uh, the farther back you are from the possible time a thing is supposed to happen, the the more foggy it is. The other thing, too, is over four decades of doing this and looking at the traditions of the world, I've come to understand two things. One, the, that the idea that prophecy is already written and everything is already preordained is, in my experience of the last four decades, a projection of of dogma that in fact the the evidence shows that there is free will and multiple futures. Do you remember um, that scene? Do you remember that scene in Terminator where the, um, the woman protagonist, I forget her name in the, in the film as falls asleep while they're repairing the vehicles or something. And she has this vivid dream about Los Angeles being nuked and her being blown away and all that. And she wakes up, and she's in her sleep. She's taken this big Bowie hunting knife, and she's cut into the picnic table in jagged letters, there is no fate, meaning exactly what you just said. The future is not immutable. It can be changed. The scene is one of the most amazing, lurid, and apocalyptic scenes of the Terminator movie. But hopeful. But hopeful. but hopeful, yes. But uh, but it but it's because they literally show the explosion of L.A. and she's holding, she's trying to yell to the kids in the playground where herself, yeah. in her earlier form, uh, is is looking like who who's that? And she's saying no, no. And then when the shockwave hits her, her she's her flesh is literally stripped off her skeleton, and then she wakes up as, 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 dream. She's, as she's clinging to that chain link and goes back to her carving. Yeah. And then, and then they find after she pulls off with the guns and stuff to try to change the future, they uh, the boy will be John Connor sees the carving, uh, you know, no no fate. Well, I have data that indicates that you're right. That I mean, that's why I worked so hard for 30, 40 years doing what I'm doing, because I I have this fundamental feeling I've had it for all these decades that only something really big. And outside current 
conception can change the track we're on, but we're awfully close to that happening. And this string of events I talked about earlier tonight, I think is part of that end game pattern. Well, I would certainly say that until I looked at further information about the situation you were talking about in Antarctica, um, what, what I have uncovered in my work is that there's definitely been uh, a greater perception of an economic change of great proportions that's going to come in China and Russia and India and even smaller countries like Poland and Germany and others are starting to stockpile precious metals uh, in lieu of a, a new kind of uh, gold-based economic system. And and that definitely with the astrology that is going on, uh, especially through 2020 and then later on at the very beginning of 2021, are you know before I unpack the astrology in layman's terms, um, there is there's a lot going on uh, that is related to powerful Earth-related signs related to the upheaval of economics. Well, so but is it does it have to be, John, an upheaval? I want to really get into this when we get into the next half hour. So let's spend this time, you know, kind of filling out for the new listeners, John Hogue, the man. Um, after that eight-year-old uh, experience, I mean, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis vividly because we were sitting up at our, our, our bed and breakfast in the middle of western New Jersey uh, watching Kennedy and that uh, those uh, – you know, layout from the White House as to what the photograph showed and what Khrushchev was doing and the quarantine, the blockade. And like you, I really felt that it was going to be that that was going to be it. We were looking at Armageddon and it did not happen. Something intervened. Sanity intervened. Um, when when you got older, were you in journalism? Were you a professional, you know, journalist like I was at CBS? I have been a professional guest, an expert, <laughs> you know, in a lot of these places. But in the process of that, uh, in 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 work that I have done as a um, prophecy scholar, uh, I've also most of the 200 plus documentaries I've appeared on in four continents. I usually am not just a guest; I'm also a creative consultant, mainly because. As you well know, in TV, uh, everything has to has to be done three days ago, and some of the uh, somebody cannot just go to the library and become a Nostradamus expert and find what they need for a show that's going to air the next day, um, or the next week, or the next even six months. It takes uh, it takes somebody who knows where to look to answer that question in a few minutes. And so, so my relationship has always been a consultant dealing with journalists and journalism and networks. I have appeared in all the networks, uh, cable and legacy in the United States, plus BBC, REI, Big Sky in England, REI in Italy, and then uh, a number of others in Russia and other places. Okay, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning for the full show, next two and a half hours, John Hogue, a seer, a deep scanner of the future, which may be a portent to what's going on with Betelgeuse tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. As long as we're on the subject of hope, I want to... Uh, Talk a bit about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking, of course, about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, that's our homepage, and click on that banner which says at the top, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology. It's a filtering technology in uh, uh, in a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form, um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter. It will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of 
of uh, mineral water, whatever, the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites, you know, on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun. And obviously they're not in non-allergenic plastic. So the water is ruined and thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of Hurricane Marie sat there and, and rotted in the sun. The same thing's been happening in the Bahamas. If tonight in this 12 days of Christmas, you want to do something to, to, to inject meaningful change into a whole group of people's lives, 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern Bahama islands tonight, just, just go to that site, click on that banner, and then scroll down below the Yes, I Want to Help button, and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago. Nothing has changed. It is like living in an apocalypse. It is like living in, you know, the land of the Lord of the Flies. It's living in conditions that you tonight, listening to my voice, cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours, 36 hours, two months, five months, you know, a year, five years. It's, it's impossible. They've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization. I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them, you know, in the northern ports there. And they desalinize seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands. But it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button, as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight. And yes, it's tax deductible because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure 99.99% pure water and the bottle and the system is recyclable, and all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles, and the bottles that they're in, the actual water bottles that you're sending, they will last essentially forever, and they will reach how many people? A thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. So do whatever you can, open your heart, and make a difference in someone's life tonight. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Twelve days of Christmas. You know that's what I believe in. Our guest this morning is Jonathan Hogue. I did it. Damn it, John. I did it. I did it. You did it. A uh, little backstory. Many, many years ago, uh, I was re- avid reader of Robert Heinlein. And then many years later, I became friends with Robert Heinlein. And Robert Heinlein wrote a story called The Unpleasant Profession. Very memorable story of Jonathan Hogue. That's all I'm going to say. And I was saying to John earlier tonight, you know, every time I mention your name, I have to catch myself. Otherwise, I'm going to slip into that other timeline and you're going to become a Jonathan. So it, it happened. The Heinlein timeline. <laughs> very good. Very good. Okay. So where were we before the break? Um, as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sings us to, out of here, there we are. Okay. Um, what were we, I was asking you about journalism because it seems to me that to pick a profession where your, your whole raison d'etre is to predict that which is inherently for 99.99% of people unpredictable, if not unbelievable, is a pretty interesting choice of a uh, profession. Well, well, first off, one has to start with the meaning of words. And and a lot of – basically journalism is, is not just uh, um, isolated to the profession of reporters. Journalism, uh, there's the same kind of attention of science to look at a hypothesis and then look at the possibilities. It can even be taken into, I contend, the subjective world. 
or the subjective science of self-observation, watching the mind, watching the emotions. Uh, what I learned in India as a disciple of Osho, starting in 1980, uh, the thing that is... Uh, a strange phenomenon of my process starting to study Nostradamus is that I went through all the pitfalls in the beginning that people innocently sometimes do and sometimes don't innocently do, but they not, they're not aware of them. And the reason is that Nostradamus wrote pur purposefully in a very cloudy, wild, poetic passion, he said. It was done to protect himself and his family and also people of his times and the future times from seeing the future so clearly that they would damn their own future. Because the thing that happens a lot with prophecy is that people in all traditions put their hopes and fears as a projection on its screen of words or experiences. And this, this is in a larger extent something that the mind does and all of us habitually is to project uh, and filter out the world according to its unconscious understanding. So there's, there's a form of investigative reporting that I do that goes deep into the psyche itself. Uh, in my own psyche is where one starts from and uh, to others. Um, the the thing that happens with this is you start to become quite a skeptical inquirer studying Nostradamus. It happened to me early where you realize that every Nostradamus verse is like a cloud in the sky. And you know how kids like to lay down in the grass and look up in a cloud. And one says, I see a giraffe. Nostradamus must be predicting about a giraffe. The other cloudy verse, somebody says, no, no, that, that's not a giraffe, that's a monkey. And then as they grow up, they become authors of entire books that argue whether one thing was a monkey and one thing was something else. And so to delve into Nostradamus, I had to be very aware of how I project myself upon things. And so that I could come back to understanding the cloud as a cloud. And perhaps then, through a long and slow study of 16th century French, and a long and slow study of kind of trying to get to know everything Nostradamus knew, and about his world, because if, if I'm coming from the hypothesis of of people projecting, then the ultimate projector I have to become intimately aware of after myself is Michel de Nostradamus. Nostradamus. I have to see what were his projections, his hopes, his fears. So your doorway um, into the future was through the Nostradamus doorway? Well, uh, no, it was through the Cuban Missile Crisis. But we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, but that's, um, that's you know, when you're eight. When you Nostradamus, Go ahead. Nostradamus came later in my life around mid, uh, around seventh grade. And then it was uh, – the instance of that was it was a sleepy afternoon. Um, they, the lights were turned on to a projector screen that was going to show a documentary called The Crooked Cross, which was about the Nazis and World War II. It began with the famous torchlight um, demonstrations of Hitler Jugend, Hitler Youth, throwing books into a fire ah, yeah. with Garibald's declaring the end of an age and the evils of Judaistic uh, intellectualism. And the the overview, the voiceover uh, started off saying, back in the thirty, back in 450 years ago, a man named Nostradamus. And I was about to fall asleep on my table when I heard that name. I immediately shot up sitting straight. And my first impression, that's been a journey all through the rest of my life, has been that's the strangest name I have ever heard. But it had a quality of incredible familiarity, although I had no reason or understanding why. Uh, 
I, an intimacy about it that I had no understanding why. Now, in those days, so what he ended up saying, the VO, the voiceover, was uh, back 450 years ago, there was a man named Nostradamus who predicted time when there would be a man named Hister of Greater Germany, and his symbol was the crooked cross. And he would uh, bring the German people into a level of barbarity, and he foresaw that the German child would know no law. And then they talked about how Hitler wanted to recondition the German youth into good barbarians. And so it went on after. So Nostradamus was used as a hook for this documentary that ah. went down the traditional ways. What I did after that was, uh, as I was doing a lot at that time of growing up, was just take seeds and plant them in my subconscious and move on with the, the dramas and the growing up of life. And about at the end of my senior year in high school, a friend of mine handed me my first true book on Nostradamus. And he said, you probably like this a lot. So this is 1974. Hmm. But in this journey, I've got to tell you is things of prophetic nature were already sprouting, sprouting in me. Um, it was in 1973, the year before, that I went to the Broadway cinema in Torrance with a friend. And, uh, and he and I watched in this absolutely filthy theater because they, did, they didn't sweep anything out. The, the, the shag carpet was a gooey with uh, oh, soda. My God. And the trash literally built all the way up to the screen. So it so the screen oh became God. kind of so the screen became kind of a cyclorama. Where you know in cyclorama of great like Gettysburg battle or stuff, they Holy have all this cow. physical stuff in the foreground because the movie was Soylent Green. Oh which my. is a story. Yes. Uh, uh it's it's based on Make Room Make Room by Harrison. Charlton Heston played the actor. Yes. And uh and also Edward G. Robinson, who was a very close friend of Charlton Heston, yeah. was literally dying of cancer, who played his book. And that was that once somebody in in a time in New York in twenty twenty two when the population was thirty million people. And it was a um the skies were constantly uh covered in smog and basically people were eating special soy manufactured products which a new one called Soylent Green was out on the on the bins it was a world in poverty a world that was crowded a world that was dying from climate change and overpopulation and even though a lot of the movie i mean it had some amazing scenes in it that are i mean especially the scene final scene I won't say, but well, the the, the, thing that the, happens, uh, the the Robinson scene is vivid. Well, the Robinson scene, there's a temple where people go, old people, so that they can unburden the population. Old people are, can go to a, a place to die, and and have a very beautiful experience. Actually, uh, Dick Van Patten played a, a bit part as the facilitator in that mm -hmm. scene where Robinson was allowed to go. Well, the thing that was brilliant about the film is that for most of the film, you, you kind of got in, inured and, and used to the smoggy skies, the crowds, the filth, the squalor, until this shocking moment when he is on his deathbed and given the slow drug to peacefully die. He watches this beautiful shot of the way the world used to be exactly with flowers and green and field and flocks of sheep and and Beethoven's pastoral symphony playing in the background and it just shocks you to the core and then it was that moment especially because of the love because these two really loved each other, so it wasn't hard to act. Somehow Heston gets to the window. He can't go in, but he can see his friend. And Robinson looks over and says, isn't it beautiful? Because mm. he'd always been telling him about it. And this cop had grown up in the, the way the world really was in 2022. Um, he's crying. Oh, it is beautiful. 
and uh, and then it's like this man is saying he starts crying as he's watching it's this beautiful sunset in pure Ghent, the death of uh, the the character in Pure Gint is playing the dee, da, dee, da, da, with the sun setting on this beautiful world, and he, and he Robinson starts crying and says, "They've they're killing us. It, we've killed it. We've destroyed it." And then he he can't hear him, so he hears it on a phone, and he tells him the secret of what Soylent Green is. Ah, yes. And and and. It it has a lot of it's kind of in many respects a B action science fiction movie from the seventies, but in its other aspects, in its theme, and in those moments like that, that were pro- really projected with real love between these two men, and the fact that Robertson was not acting, he died two weeks after that scene yeah, was done. Yeah. He knew he was dying. John, remember this and, was this was the era where Nixon created the EPA. Where Love Canal yeah. was bursting into spontaneous flame, where the yeah. environment suddenly, after those incredible images from Apollo of Earth in the dark from the moon, overtook people's also, consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was that, and there was also – but what happened in my consciousness was an epiphany. I saw that this – was possibly going to happen. And so very, it's like 46, 47 years ago, I became aware of the danger of climate change and a warming overpopulated world. And in my memory of the movie, something happened that was rather prophetic in that my memory of the movie put it forward to 2030. And for decades, I hadn't reviewed that, and I realized that it wasn't a mistake, but it was an augmentation of the vision the movie was trying to give. The magic year, the year of no return, is 2030. And now, so much of the science is looking at... The other thing that happened is, over the years, I had a very strong feeling that somehow the worst-case scenario not the least case, the softest scenario was going to end up being the reality. And what unfortunately I have to report is that in many of my books that started my articles in 1983 and then my first book in 1986, published in 87, and then all the many floods of books after that, especially one I wrote in India called the Millennium Book of Prophecy, which had 777 predictions roughly divided in half between doom and bloomsday, the possibilities of either or. In that book, uh, I basically saw that um, you know we were basically heading for the 2020s into the 2030s as the critical mass, that things were going to come much faster, not at the end of the 21st century, but Starting in the 2020s and 2030s, many of the things then that people were talking about in the late 80s and early 90s, I saw they were coming in in our future next 20 years. Hmm. And unfortunately, and I wondered why. And then I finally, after a long research and study and seeing the development of these things, it wasn't even that long ago that I finally, I finally could conclude why, is that as many people who climate change deny think that these alarmist uh, reports that are coming are somehow a way to get more funding for <laughs> for their work. I mean, I understand the common sense, but one has to always watch with common sense. If one follows common sense, then the Earth is the center of the universe and everybody spins around it. Um, and it takes certain unusual skeptical inquiry in the true sense of that word, not I have a negative opinion about this being true. In the Greek uh, lexicon of skeptikos, skeptikos has no qualifier. It is simply to investigate. It, is, it doesn't have a blind belief or a blind debunk to filter the investigation beginning through. Yeah, unlike, and, unlike and that, that, I, that, that famous magazine, which has a definite bias. Skeptical Inquirer. 
Oh well, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the, Paul, unfortunately, the name? James, the James Randies of the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Skeptical Inquirer, yeah. and and the guy I can't think of his name, but I remember confronting him in one of the shows I was in when we were off camera. I I backed him up against the wall and said, "You know that you haven't looked at this. <laughs> you know that you, you are, and when you haven't looked at this with true Skeptical Inquiry." You are doing a disservice to skeptical inquiry. Good for you. Uh, you know, skeptical inquiry, as I understand it, has to be uh, done with no – it's so easy to follow a feeling that ends up being a conclusion. Yep. And And when that happens, the danger is we end up doing what has been done through scripture since the beginning of religions. We take a little from here and a little from there, and we create something like the rapture, which actually is not in the scripture. It's, nope. a, it's a, nope. a couple statements that have been stretched out, and it's a recent uh, projection from the turn of the 19th into the 20th century by some Scottish evangelical that I can't think about, the whole seventh, uh, the seven-year tribulation, all of that. And none of it wants to look at the fact that in Revelation 13, the uh, that poor St. John is trying desperately to almost spill the beans on who his beast of Revelation is. And you know, in those days, there was there were no numbers, numerals, so language, uh, alphabets had numerical values. The same existed for the Hebrew and Greek that was spoken in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Roman world at that time. Kind of the commercial language, uh, lingua franca of that time, just like English is now, is Greek, and so it wasn't surprising that John spoke Greek. And in, in regards to that, he's saying it's it's this man, if you spell out his name, it will come to the sum of 666. And when you do that in Greek, it comes the, up to the sum of Neron Kaiser, which means in Greek, Nero Caesar. The other, there is a fragment of an earlier version of the book of Revelation, not the complete, but that has 666 in it, but something earlier that has Revelation 13 in it, and the number of the beast is 616. That can spell out Neron Caligula. Uh, so, it, and then if you go into the Greek, you look and see that there's at least 21 references to immediacy in the present tense. This is going to happen now in our time, in your life. All of that gets overlooked for 2,000 years, which means that this prophecy, the book of Revelation, which is literally being, after 2,000 years of programming, a certain anticipation, may very well be a completely misunderstood projection on our near future. and has nothing to do with this century but the first century A.D. Mm. So, so in a way, prophecy demands even more clearly to me than even normal investigative reporting that one is skeptical in, in that one is very aware of just taking the time to see what is there and what, and what may or may not happen, but not rush to a judgment, not, um, but not uh, – it's a balance. Not It's a tightrope of, of truth, so, which so, in a tightrope takes constant amount of adjusting. So in your profession, how much of your analyses of the future is analytical? Numbers, the astrological portents, which of course is the hyperdimensional geometry, etc. And how much is internal John Hogue – intuition, deep scan, connection across time and space to those echoes from things yet to come. To do what I do, I don't I don't uh, deal in making this is the quantity of I do this over here because it's not me. The thing that also has to be understood with this it's like it's like how much how much love, how much quantifying of love can you stack over here in your life opposed to quantifying love of someone else over here? 
there are things in the world of subjective which have to be immersed in. One has to be the subject. That's what subjectivity means. The And there is, from what I've learned in my experiences with Osho and meditation, the art of no self-observation, this, this thing going around the New Age about mindfulness, mm-hmm. no one seems to understand that that is a, it's the problem. People are too full of their minds, and they cannot connect with that which is a witness of the mind. Uh, and that is completely, I mean, many people live and die thinking their mind is everything. But if you can watch your thoughts, then there's something deeper. If you can not only be carried off by your emotions, but watch yourself in your own movie being carried off in your own emotions, then there's something deeper. And so, so on the one hand, there's, there's a part of me that is analytical, that I try to know the data, the history, the intimacy of things. It's especially needed with Nostradamus because he plays his visions like a movie. And he smells and sees and hears them, too. And so, so they're pictorial. They're like movies. You have to kind of catch the intimate details of events. Uh, and that requires a lot of deep study into history, especially the last 500 years. And you have to have an aptitude for future trends, which means, unfortunately, future trends tend to answer a question about you know, the future, if it's not happened yet, how can one predict it? I wanted to answer that from your beginning because it's a good question. And the answer I have for that is no one has ever seen the future ever. What you're seeing is the past repeated and projected upon whatever mystery the future is, which is pure imagination and potential. The human race and all the prophets, basically, I contend, have been repeating the past and seeing it rhyming and repeating in the future. And one of the reasons why this seems to be coming to an end, to a wall, which I looked at in the Millennium Book of Prophecy by taking a control group of prophets who were really good at doing the hardest thing to do in prophecy, state a date centuries into the future or decades into the future, and get the date right for the event. It's very hard to do that because I would imagine that it takes so many things of pattern to happen unconsciously for that to happen. Mm. We, are at just the, say, we are at the top of the hour. Hold it there. My guest this morning is John Hogue. I was very careful that time. And we're going to skip to the future when we return. You're on the other side of midnight in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas following yonder star. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say 
We really need you. We really need you. Over and out.